Section 19 of G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922, by G. K. Chesterton. Cannibalism and Chivalry, by G. K. Chesterton. A distinguished lady has just returned from a visit to a very interesting community, such as the most enlightened and experimental sociologists love to study. It has already experimented in many of the innovations still only tentatively advocated in the newspapers. For instance, it is a society in which women propose. Nearly everything about it strikes the same modern note. We are told that the flappers, or very young women, have a considerable emotional experience, and that degree of progress which some call precocity. It is true that when the precocious lady has proposed to the more or less complacent gentleman, other things sometimes follow. Sometimes the gentleman hits the lady on the head with a club. Sometimes he even eats her. But from an enlarged point of view, I am not sure that this last detail ought to militate against the claim of the society to be truly modern. We know that the mark of modern emancipation is the elimination of artificial boundaries. Why not the artificial boundary between one kind of cold meat and another? We know it means the enlarging of our Bibles and prayer books, so they contain all the scriptures and litanies of all the religions of the world. Why not the enlargement of our cookery books and bills of fare, until they cover all the varied customs of the various tribes of the world? We know it specializes in the idea of assimilation, or the digestion of different systems into a substantial unity. And where could there be a more perfect example of assimilation than anthropophagy? The very word contains the Greek substance of the word philanthropy. Indeed, the word philanthropy, by a slight extension of its meaning, might be used as a euphemism for cannibalism. I once saw an ethical hymn-book full of religious poems purged of the irrelevant expletive God. In this, an old and familiar hymn reappeared in the form, Nearer Mankind to Thee, Nearer to Thee. It always suggested to me the conditions of a suffocating crush in the tube, but I am not sure that the expedient of cannibalism does not more aptly represent the idea of the hymn, or even solve the problem of the tube. It seems to be the most effective and economical way in which many could be combined in one, and we could unite the assimilation of substance with the amplification of space. Nothing stands in the way of this reform, except one of these sentimental prejudices, or superstitious fears, which we are more and more shedding in every other department of life. Anyhow, what interests me at the moment about the account of the cannibal islands, given by the intrepid lady explorer, is not the second point about cannibalism, but the first point about courtship. It is perhaps the more practical and immediately relevant of the two. Progress goes step by step, and we shall probably see ladies obtain the privilege 
of proposing before they obtained the further privilege of being eaten, and the fact that the women who asked the men to marry them are also the women who allow the men to brain them interests me very much in a larger connection. It interests me very much, but it does not surprise me at all. The two things seem to me to go together quite naturally, and even inevitably. I think I should always have argued in the abstract that it must be so. Describe to me some remote or imaginary utopia in which a man has a harem so literally like a herd of cattle that he can even knock a wife on the head and eat her. And I think I could have deduced from that fact alone that the woman proposed to the man, as in the most advanced novels of the suffragettes. In those novels, and the newspapers that review them, it always seems to be assumed that the custom of letting the proposal come from the man indicates in some way the greater despotism, or at least the greater dignity, of the man. In itself, it obviously indicates the exact opposite. The despot does not crave an audience with his subject, or beg a boon of his subject. The subject craves the audience from the despot, and begs the boon of the despot. The king does not petition the people, the people petition the king. In short, it is certain that the custom, as it has existed in moderately recent European history at least, is a part of the chivalric idea of a certain kind of dignity belonging to the woman which does not belong to the man. Now, it is perfectly consistent to say that the chivalric notion is all moonshine. It is perfectly consistent to say that any notion of a special female dignity is all moonshine. Some of us may content ourselves with answering that Diana is not so easily defeated, and that moonshine has to all appearance come to stay. But it is perfectly logical, on certain premises, to deny the dignity of Diana. It is quite tenable that women would have been happier if they had always been entitled to propose. It is also very tenable, indeed, that women would have been happier if they had always been in a harem. The method meets hundreds of the most pressing modern problems, from the proportions of the sexes to the burden of reproduction. And for that matter, I cannot see that it is untenable that they would have been happier if they had always been eaten, considering how much more comfortable and contented are most of the creatures whom we keep for eating compared with the numerous human beings whom we never provide with enough to eat. And this is all quite tenable, and upon certain first principles quite logical, and in the same sense it is quite logical to say that all forms of ceremonial respect paid to women as such are absurd. What is not tenable, or logical, or even intelligent, is to deny the difference between a thing being absurd and a thing being meant to be absurd. It is one thing to say that we ought not to look up to an idol, and another to say that we look up to it because we look down on it. A man may say that he is of so detached and rational a spirit that a man on a throne is no more impressive to him than a man in a pillory. He may be perfectly sincere, and it might also be worth while to test his sincerity by putting him in the pillory. But if he says that people put a man on a throne because they meant to put him in a pillory, then the test has had a clearer scientific result, and he may well be put in a straight waistcoat. He may say that a mitre is like a dunce's cap in the sense that the bishop is a fool, but not in the sense that the congregation meant to make a fool of him. 
If he seriously says that, we have not to look far for the fool. It may be silly that the Lord Mayor of London should be encumbered with a great golden chain, but it would hardly be more sensible to go about saying, In London they chain up the Lord Mayor, and exhibit him like a bear or a monkey, to the derision of the mob. It may be silly that he should travel in a great coach, but it would not be sensible to say that he is dragged in a cage or box as a captive of the coachman. And the same elementary sanity, which teaches us that the mayor is not dragged at the chariot wheels of his own coachman, or that the mitre is not put on the bishop as an extinguisher to make him invisible to the multitude, ought to tell us that the custom of the man coming to the woman, instead of the woman to the man, is meant to increase the prestige of the woman, corresponding as it does to numberless other ceremonial relations of the same sort. Of course it is always possible, in this, as in numberless other things, to confuse the living issue by all sorts of hazy conjectures about evolution. The thing may not have been exactly like this in remote or prehistoric conditions, when nobody knows what it was like. It may have been, and may be still, indeed it certainly is, complicated by other social ideals and necessities that do give a superiority to the male for certain purposes, and on certain occasions. But the instinct which most civilized Europeans feel against the reversal of parts in this matter, except for special causes or in special circumstances, is quite certainly, so far as it goes, the instinct of chivalry. It is quite certainly not merely the instinct of barbaric domination. And the proof of this, in fact, which is already obvious a priori, is to be found in the very interesting experience of the lady traveler, which I quoted at the beginning of this article. The place where the woman does really make the proposal is exactly the place where she is really put in the pot. It is perhaps worthwhile to make a note on this very natural fact, because most of the current ideas on all these matters of sexual dignity and sexual difference seem to be in an almost unlimited chaos. It is not so much that I disagree with them as that I can never exactly discover what it is with which I have to agree or disagree. I know what I myself think, and it is something exceedingly dull and commonplace, because it is what the whole common sense of Christendom thinks and is generally thought. I think women should have a certain place of dignity specially preserved for them by the manners of civilization, because their highest function is one which in its nature requires protection and a certain degree of withdrawal from extreme activities and competitions. There are a great many exceptions to this rule, and I am quite ready to make allowance for the exceptions, but not to allow them to disprove the rule. I am most emphatically not prepared to treat women, or men either, merely as individuals, as if there were no such thing as families. That is what I think, but what the reformers who rebuke me think, I have never been able to discover. Sometimes they seem to be protesting, against my unchivalrous conduct in wishing to insult women with chivalry. Sometimes they seem to suggest that I am in favor of hitting women because I explain why they should not be hit. Sometimes I am told to pity the toil and tragedy of the lonely working woman. Sometimes I am told it is pitiless to thwart her when she rushes on such a tragedy or sells herself into the slavery of such a toil. I am perfectly ready to pity everybody in the tangle and muddle of the modern world. But the person I pity most 
is the philosopher or historian whose duty it shall be to describe this modern movement in anything like logical or intelligible words, or to tell posterity what these people really wanted and what they were really driving at. Current Affairs Things are moving pretty fast towards a demand for interference in Irish affairs. When that demand comes, it is possible enough that the quarrel it will excite may give finance the opportunity it desires for getting rid of Lloyd George. The financiers will take any opportunity they can get. The politician will sit very tight in his chair, and the process of eviction will, as I said last week, be well worth watching. The farce will be a good one. For international finance is really a matter of urgency. It is already an uncomfortable feeling that it is beaten, but that is only an instinct. The recent breakdown of Genoa is much more obvious and immediate, and since Lloyd George, acting as the financier's agent at Genoa, has let them down, not from ill will, but from sheer incapacity, they will and must get rid of him. I think it is probable that their chance will come over Ireland. The run of our newspapers give us no more understanding of the Irish position than they do of any other problem in Europe. It is presented in our press, as all the other problems are presented, is made out to be a mere confusion and folly, the result of trusting political power to debased creatures living in the plain below our own. The international policy of France is represented as a piece of stupidity, a blunder in elementary arithmetic. The international policy of Poland is represented as a piece of wild unreality, the action of men who know nothing of the world as it is, with its powerful armed Prussia, its magnificent, eager, patriotic Russian army, the opinion of Europe, and all the rest of it. The result of such newspaper work is to leave the average educated reader in a dense fog. He thinks the world has gone mad, outside his own country, or, alternatively, he nourishes the more comforting thought that, outside his own country, white men are as incapable as children. The disadvantage of this kind of public education is that it heads the country into disaster. It is as much as though you blindfolded a man and then turned him into the London traffic, and nowhere has the process had worse effect than in the matter of Ireland. To read the papers, you would think the Irish were people who killed men, women, and children at random, burned down houses for the sake of burning them, quarreled among themselves to no purpose at all, and with no aim, the whole welter vaguely illuminated by some strange principle of religious difference, itself quite incomprehensible, for is not religion nowadays but an ill-defined and unimportant personal opinion? Seeing Ireland thus, general opinion, reflected of course in the professional politicians, has blundered so enormously that now at last it has created a permanent and very grave point of weakness in the international position of this country, and it looks as though the weaknesses were to be aggravated in the near future. Yet the problem is simple enough, if we put it as every political problem should be put, in terms of its chief historic elements, and those elements in their proper order. The Irish nation is the oldest nation in Europe, it is also the nation with the strongest sense of patriotism. There is only one older nation in the world that we know of, and that is the dispersed nation of Israel. The Irish never came under the discipline of the Roman Empire. Therefore, when, 
in the continued expansion of our civilization eastward and westward, Britain attempted to include Ireland within its realm, as the Germans, civilized from France, attempted in their turn to include the Slav. The Irish found themselves ill-equipped for the struggle, but the attempt to include them in the British realm never completely succeeded. The efforts at conquest were spasmodic, and the results slipped back. After the Reformation came a new and much stronger element of disruption. The Irish kept their faith, the English lost it, to the profit of the great landlords, who were the backbone of the Reformation movement. After that prodigious change, the attempt to subjugate Ireland took the form of a Protestant colonization, which, in its turn, had two main limbs, the confiscation of all the land for Protestant advantage, and the planting in the northeast of alien, homogeneous Protestant bodies. The climax of this was reached at the end of the 17th century. For three generations, the alien domination remained complete. Then came, through stages, that are familiar to all of us, but from causes which will never be fully analyzed, the revolution in the relation between the two countries, which has led at last to a position in which the independence of the Irish people became a practical possibility, and therefore our own defeat in the matter a practical possibility also. Every event converged towards this end. Equally did these events adverse to the Irish, and those favorable to them led on by a strange destiny to the same result. The liberal movement in France made for the political emancipation of the Catholics in Ireland. The delay in granting it did but strengthen its power. The famine which seemed to have destroyed the Irish people again strengthened them enormously by spreading them throughout the new world and bringing them in masses to permeate the towns of England. The struggle for the land which appeared hopeless was won. Every act of our foreign government was swept into the tide. Acts of coercion proved to the advantage of the Irish, so did acts of conciliation. Murder and treachery by the police warmed the national feeling. The land acts and the country council strengthened it just as much on the other side. To the various home rule bills of the 80s and 90s, you need pay no attention. They were hypocritical and not intended to succeed. But just before the Great War came the final crisis. The little minority in the northeast of Ireland, seeing that at last their domination was threatened, decided to rebel. They were aided in this by a military pronunciamento, a general officer in command of the English garrison, supported the decision of the officers to disobey the law. Mr. Asquith's government gave way with incredible weakness. They bowed to the military mutiny. They allowed the rebels in the northeast to import arms openly from Germany. They had the reward. The rising in 1916 finished the affair. It left two plain alternatives, to conquer Ireland and hold it by force of arms, or to grant full autonomy. Observe what followed, for it is a capital example of how corrupt politicians are invariably weak and foolish politicians as well. A few months after the rebellion, a group of millionaires, three of whom worked through great newspaper combinations, overset the last traditional administration. The last prime minister who was in the long line of the educated English gentleman, who, since Walpole, had administered the state, they set up Lloyd George. It was a change far greater in import even than the Irish rebellion over the preceding spring. The new government began by trying to make peace secretly 
with the enemy behind the back of the allies, and from that enormity one can judge the spirit in which it would deal with the particular problem of Ireland. It proposed to subjugate the Irish by a method of terror and cruelty, which it would excuse to the United States, who were pressing us very hard, by repudiating its own agents. The result was grotesque. You had some fool of a politician or other saying openly in the House of Commons, for American consumption, that the people of Cork had burned down their own city. You had the most lamentable shiftings and twistings, explanations and excuses made to the various American envoys. You had another politician shouting in the midst of these negotiations that there would be no surrender, till the last arms had been taken from the hands of the last rebel. Then upon sharp, determined pressure from the foreigner, and from finance, there was a complete surrender. It was a matter of a few hours. The politicians unsaid all that they had been saying, and proclaimed their indifference to the success of the Irish army. Had they in this abject and lamentable surrender been consistent something might have been saved from the wreck. We should have come out of the venture heavily beaten and lessened in the eyes of the whole world, but at any rate with a clear policy. We should have been free of the burden of Ireland. But the smaller kind of liar cannot live without blunder, and the arch-blunder of all was made at that very moment. The fools who thus surrendered at the wrong hour thought it a clever piece of intrigue to promise two incompatible things to two warring sets of men. They told the newly enfranchised Irish that, though there would be partition, the frontier of the little northern eastern state should be drawn so as to leave to the national government all except the small districts wholly Protestant and alien. They told the orange men that they should be given control over as large a portion of the Catholic and nationalist districts as was compatible with keeping a bare Protestant majority. They thought, in their wretched incompetence, that to lie, no matter how clumsily, was always the best way out of a difficulty. The consequences of that lie are before them today. There are only two paths possible now, either the reconquest of Ireland, at heaven knows what expense to our remaining international strength, or the abandonment of partition, and therefore the abandonment of the Orangemen to their fate, a thing abhorrent to English opinion. The politicians have put us into a cleft stick, and left us with the choice between reconquest at the peril of failure and universal breakdown elsewhere, and a completely independent and hostile Ireland united under one government. We may guess well enough what will happen. The politicians will fall between two stools. They will attempt interference, but they will attempt it clumsily and with insufficient force. In the breakdown, the financiers will get rid of Lloyd George. End of section 19. Recording by Greg Giordano, Newport Ritchie, Florida.